the Restorative Justice Chronicles podcast, Chapter 5. I am your host, Deb Witzel, a restorative justice facilitator, consultant, trainer, public speaker, and program developer. The Restorative Justice Chronicles podcast is a collection of stories with people who have personal experience with restorative justice processes. If you listened to Chapter 4, With Jason Kasparek, you heard the story from the point of view of a person who has been robbed at gunpoint. That happened in the 1990s. This episode is part two in a three-part series about this crime and the restorative justice processes that took place as a result. This episode features Michael Clifton, who at 19 was part of that armed robbery. We met shortly after he was released on clemency earlier this year. He credits Jason and many other good people with the support they provided for his release. We are sharing this episode on Mother's Day 2023, the first time in over 20 years that Michael has been able to celebrate Mother's Day with his mom in person. He dedicates this episode to her. This episode of the RJ Chronicles has things that are hard to hear, so take care of yourself and anyone else in earshot. And now, Chapter 5 with Michael Clifton. Michael Clifton, welcome to the Restorative Justice Chronicles podcast. I'm so glad you're here with us. Thank you for having me. I'm excited as well. I'm glad to be here. We're going to start with a prologue that is you just sharing about yourself, some of who you are. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, you know, I'm someone who who loves life. I love to um, interact and very... uh, outgoing sociable person um i um i'm just right now i'm enjoying life the simple things and i'm experiencing all kind of stuff that uh it's really like it's new to me you know uh i was uh actually went out the other night hey with chopsticks for the first time so like you know just simple stuff like that uh go car racing with my son mm, how old is your son he's uh 27 yeah and, so, and he's married two kids yeah, I'm a granddad times two, so. Oh my God! You know, just being able to experience that—it's um, been beautiful. It's been, um, you know, I mean, for me, it's just—I'm just overjoyed. It's there, but I'm, but I'm just blessed to be in the moment and just living it. You know. Mm-hmm. Give us a few sentences about your growing up. Okay, yeah. So I'm I'm the baby of the family. Uh, you know, I have an older brother and sister, so it's five of us, and we grew up uh, in the Denver area. And um, I, you know, I, you know, I was a, a you know just a, a kid that that loved, got into sports, wrestling. Uh, followed basically pretty much after my brother's footsteps, and we loved to hang out with my my buddies and my friends. And you know, at some point, probably about like the seventh grade, I you know started to fall in love with girls, and so that was that was my little youthful life for a minute, right? You know, you know when you're young, you know you you make some decisions, and you're not really thinking about like the impact, right? The and the consequences of those decisions. And for me, um. 
you you watch certain things like maybe the Rodney King beating or certain things like that, and you um you kind of get like upset at the system, you know. And so um so yeah, I mean uh I you know when I was younger, I knew I knew I used to do things that were wrong, and and in my mind I was okay with it because I felt like I wasn't physically hurting nobody, and the things that I were doing, I, I looked at them and this is not that bad, you know um. You know, shoplifting and things like that. You know, kids want things and they don't have the money, and and you you make those impulsive impulsive decisions, not realizing the uh, impact they're gonna have on your life. But not only just your life, right? Your whole family's life, uh, the people that you know, whether you're talking about businesses or the people that you're, uh, you know, taking things from. How it's going to affect them, you know? Yeah, and sounds like that was part of your adolescence. Yeah, definitely. If you had to dedicate your episode to mm. someone, who would you dedicate it to and what would you say? Um, I would dedicate it to my mom, you know, and, and I would dedicate it to her because, you know, she she um she was in like my rock, you know, through all the hard times. Um and you know, and she she never gave up on me, you know. Even when I like, you know, hit rock, rock bottom and, and got myself into some serious trouble. So yeah, you know, definitely her. Um and I'm and you know, I'm just so happy now that she can see, you know, the change and the growth. And that, you know, her, uh, that her love and her, um, just all her hard work is uh, not for nothing, you know? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What is the story that led to your restorative justice? Yeah. So, I mean, when we, when I caught this case with my co-defendant, uh, you know, I was 19. Um, you know, we were young and we wanted all these things and just went about it the wrong way, you know, um, and so we ended up committing two robberies. Uh, one was an, a morning robbery, which had one person, uh, Jason, and then one was a night robbery that had two other victims. Um, and so we ended up getting arrested for those, uh, the robberies. And for me, um, I don't remember uh, everything. Uh, even when I committed crimes, it was, not, it was I didn't want to hurt people, right? Um, and then, like, even when we committed these robberies, we had we had a gun, but it was an um, unloaded weapon because, you know, we we just wanted to, you know, have it, you know, to basically so that things would go smooth. But uh, we didn't, we, we never wanted to, like, harm anybody. You know, what I remember is that he was terrified and that, um, like, I was trying to calm him down and assure him that we weren't going to hurt him. I knew that, but he didn't know that, you know. And so that's what I was trying to, you know, convey to him. Like, listen, you know, we're not going to hurt you. We're just here for the money. And so, um, so yeah, that's, that's, that's what I remember from that incident. If we went to trial, we were facing 98 years uh, at a minimum, and a maximum was like 324 years. And, and the way that that happened was because, so you had the morning robbery, which was one person, and the night robbery, which is two people. And so when they charged us, they charged us with, 
three aggravated robberies, three kidnappings, and two burglaries, as well as uh, a crime of violence. And so the crime of violence, it has mandatory sentencing, so the judge has no discretion. And so, and you know, the judge, you know, even commented that sentence, under the law, I have no choice but to sentence you to, you know, 98 years. And so that was that phase, uh, you know, and, and you know, um, uh, for certain reasons, I won't go into too much detail about the trouble that I got into in prison, but I'll, I'll just say that, um, you know, when I went to prison, you know, I got into a lot of trouble. Um, ended up going to, yeah, after about f- like four years, I think I ended up going to CSP. Uh, Can you say what the CSP stands for? Yeah, it's uh, Colorado um, State Penitentiary, and it's it's a, basically a maximum uh, closed prison where you're locked down, basically 23 hours a day. Um, and so, yeah, I, I went there and basically spent five years between there and um, Centennial, which was the pro unit uh, back then. It was where you transition out of uh, AGSEG. But, um, you know, so. So you spent how long in AGSEG? Five years, yeah. Yeah, and so you know, after I came out of there, um, you know, I, I was still myself, but obviously it had, it had certain effects on me, and so, and now you know, my me understanding my case and my sentence, you know, I've always felt in my heart that it was unjust. I still feel that it was unjust. Um, I'm not shy or bashful about that. Um, so basically, I hit. You know, you hear a lot of times where people say I, I, I hit rock, rock bottom, right? Like. Um, Life on outside was going out on as far as with my family, you know, and I'm, you know, in touch with them uh, and hearing about things and how they're doing and how my kids are growing up. And, you know, I just really got to a point like, um, yeah, there was so where you kind of like just you're, you're upset. And, you know, this is a strong word, but I was like disgusted with myself. And, you know, I'm looking in the mirror and it was just, a, you know, for me, I'm like, oh, this is sad. Right. And but what was more. Um, I guess frustrating for me was because, like, I I knew that I was better than than you know what I had become, you know how how I was raised and what was inside of me. I knew I was better than that, and so I basically you know had to make a decision to um, walk away from. All the things, all the things that I was caught up in in prison, as far as gangs, as far as gambling, as far as uh, all of it. Yeah, it was a lot. But um, I knew I had a goal. My goal was to uh, come home, right? Like, obtain my freedom, right? And so, you know, it was a moment there when I was breaking myself of those bad habits and and, uh, and stepping away from the gangs and stuff like that. Um, Can I ask you a question about the gangs and stuff? Yeah. Was that part of your life before prison? No, no, yeah. Like, I mean, you know, I have friends that were involved in gangs, right? But there's, you know, for those that are familiar with it, there's a, there's, there's a thing of gang banging, and then there's a thing of being, you know, associated or feeling with gangs. And so I was never a gang banger. Um, yeah, um, that just never was me. Um, my my thing that you know I, you know that got me into the trouble that I am was always like I had this thing for money and the games come with prison politics but there's also the race element right um, and there's also the money element which you know 
that doesn't matter if you're in prison or um, in the free world, right? There's there's the the, the desire to uh, have and obtain things, and and there's there's the a means certain means of how to go about doing that, and, and and some of them are just more dangerous than others. And so, if I could have been a little a little had a little more wisdom, uh, maybe a little more um, brain development, yeah. Um, <laughs> Uh, maybe I could have, you know, been stronger and, and, and made smarter decisions and not uh, put myself in, in situations. But when I went to prison, I was 21. And so you come down to prison with 98 years and you're 21 and you start thinking about what they, you know, they call trouble, uh, a write-up. Um, you want to talk to me about... Um, a write-up for it. I'm not supposed to have this pen, but you but you gave me 98 years. What what do you want me to do, right? And so, you know, it's a lot of people look at it like, well, you are in that position because of the decision you made. So so suck it up, right? But these are the realities of the mindsets of young men when we send them to prison with, um, like not having any kind of hope or any kind of path like an actual path that they can see and work towards to redeem themselves and have a possibility of hope and freedom again Now, and I think, I think you know, because so many people inside as well as outside um, are starting to realize, like, you know, they, this is not, it's not, it's not productive or it's not, it's not healthy, healthy towards reaching an uh, outcome that we, we hope to reach. And, and that outcome is, is to basically, right, we want to hold people accountable for their actions, but at, at the same time, we hope that they learn um, from those actions and that they come out better people than when they went in. And so that the punitive model really doesn't focus on that and, and it's not um it doesn't really really help that. It doesn't help reach that. And so that's where we start talking about the restorative justice model, which is really about focusing on the victim first and their needs. But it also focuses on like um, getting help to the people that actually cause harm, so that they learn and don't don't do those things again. You know, and so 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 the restorative justice model really is about people developing empathy. Yes, let's talk about how you came to doing a restorative process with Jason. Well, okay, so I mean. I felt my clemency because of what happened in my co-defendant's case. And and my co-defendant, after he was uh, pardoned, he ended up doing the um, victim-offender uh, dialogue with, with uh, Jason. When he, my co-defendant and Jason uh, got together, you know, his, the news was recording it. And so, so I was able to watch it. Um, it was definitely like a, a mix of emotions, but you know, it was what was really painful was just seeing that you know this was twenty years later, almost I think like maybe twenty one years later, and just to see the pain that um, 
Jason was still feeling, and you know that that hurt a lot. Um, so when when I when I when I found my clemency, you know they reach out to the victim and they ask them, you know, how do they feel about you um, applying for clemency? And so well, what Jason tells me is that you know when they reached out to him and asked him, he said he didn't want to make a decision without um, you know getting to meet me and kind of see who I am today and then this you know this 20 something years later as as a grown man and so and that was uh I'm you know I'm so appreciative of him for doing that because you know he he actually you know had a basic change of heart you know because because of the pain or the trauma and all those things that he he had experienced you know at first he was completely uh opposed to uh any kind of relief so he reached out to Monica Chambers and Monica Chambers reached out to me and she asked me would I be willing to do the victim offender dialogue and I said yes you know I was I was familiar with restorative justice you know I was already in the works of uh, working with and had developed along with uh, Marion Funches uh Pathway to Freedom for a long-term offenders program which focuses on victim impact awareness and so so I was you know I was familiar with victim impact awareness and understanding what it means and having empathy and putting the victim's needs first and the victim is always first a lot of times people forget about like the person that committed that harm, they they also need help. Like that's that's what you know. That's what I had an understanding of that. So we we developed that program to kind of like help, basically like share that you know you know, and maybe give that like understanding to uh, other inmates. And that's what Pathway to Freedom does. It offers that learning opportunity. Yeah. And and you know and and so so the meeting with Jason was set up, and you know. They prepare you. And so, yeah, uh, mine was, uh, you know, definitely probably different than anybody else's um, because, you know, I was able to, like, literally watch my co-defendant go through that. And that's normally not something that happens as far as being able to watch a victim-offender dialogue, especially with the person that you harmed, right? You know, I was preparing for it. I felt like the work that I was doing and had done um, was had prepared me for it. Um, but I was still nervous, and and it was for me it's 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 weird, but it's but it's not so much weird because I was nervous leading up to the meeting except the day of, like the day of. So when you do the victim offender dialogue, you have a support person that you can bring on the journey along with you, and as well as the victim, they can have a support person. So, uh, the the morning of the meeting, um, my support person. And they were asking me, was I nervous? And I and I was like, and I was like, no. I said, um, I'm actually calm. Like I said, I just feel like this sense of calmness that came over me. And I really can't explain like why or how. You know, I don't. You know, I don't want to turn it into too much. But I'm just saying, like I felt this sense of calmness, and the nervousness was gone. And so we met, and uh, we shook hands. And they always allow the victim to speak first. You know. Like I say, my situation was completely different. So please don't like misunderstand the victim offender dialogue process. But ours started out where Jason was very like apologetic about the situation that I was still in, right? Um, and and he was expressing to me, you know how you know he understood that I had made a you know bad decision when I was young. But you know we all make mistakes, and he felt like I deserved a second chance. And so. Um, that was, you know, it was very touching for me. And so that was the part that was so, you know, obviously different 
from my victim's offender dialogue. Whatever he needed or whatever, like he got out of the victim offender dialogue with my co-defendant, um, he didn't have questions about like the, the crime or this or that. And then so, you know, once I was able to speak, I could just express him my, how sorry I was, how, you know, I, I had been, you know, ashamed of, you know, those actions and the things I had done to him and how they affected him in his life. And not to make that part so, I guess, make that part so simple. But once we, we moved past that, it was it was more of uh, just us um, kind of like, I guess, bonding. Well, he had been hearing a lot about me and the things I was doing. He kind of shared that, and so I, I kind of gave him a little more insight into it. And um, I had I invited him to, because we was working on our our second big play with University of, uh, University of Denver Prison Arts Initiative, um, If Light Closed His Eyes. And so, like, it was literally, like, probably like two months away when we was opening. And so I invited him. Uh, him and his wife but it was it was cool like I invited him because that's that was the connection that we felt almost like instantly and so yeah I just kind of just share with him man you know how how it was so important for me to uh, continue to do like the stuff that I'm doing like so what I understand is that like I have a social responsibility right and that's um and it's it's listen, it's good to be free and it's good to be able to enjoy life and experience things with my family and my friends but I also know I have like a a social responsibility to to like share my journey, my story, and 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 you know maybe give other people hope or uh, give them you know understanding of like the process and and then the possibilities of right because like I just said there was a time where I was an asset and so I was considered like this dangerous person that couldn't couldn't be moved two feet without being in uh, ankle chains and handcuffs and stuff like that and so you know for those that are where whatever you're at in your life or whatever you're going through you, you can you can turn it around you know like for me, it took like ten years, right? And so it's not going to be like automatic or quick, right? You know, it's it's a process. Yeah, and change is a process. Yeah. So for me, it's like like I say, it's just about like I say, sharing my story, but also letting people know like this is real. The impact of restorative justice. Um, like Jason drove. He came and picked me up this morning and drove me out here, right? So me and my family, and which is not his family. You know, we went out to dinner, we, we hang out, we hung out. And so that's that's the possibilities of having compassion. And, you know, it's not for everybody, but forgiveness and the possibility of reconciling when somebody has caused harm. So, yeah, that's a powerful process. Yeah. talked about your social responsibility and to show up in that place for Jason, for whatever he needs, and then to bond in the way that you have. I'm just sitting here right now in my own body feeling the healing. I, I don't know what the right words are because it feels so profound, mm. but the the connection, that feels like such a small word for what yeah. feels like a life-changing thing. Yeah, it definitely was. And I was doing that work. Like you say, it's really indescribable. You try to explain it or you try to tell it, but 
it to be in that moment. So we we ate and we just talked about life and, you know, he shared, you know, his life and with me and, you know, the things he went through as far as the good and the bad. And I talked about my family and, and my hopes, uh, you know, my dreams for my, once I was released. So when we first met in the beginning of me, you know, we, we shook hands, you know. But it was it was it was more you know formal, right? It's just you're you're, meet, you're meeting somebody, and even though this is uh, you know the person you harmed, and but you just you shake hands, it's formal, right? But at the end of the meeting, we got up, and you you know the men we do the half hug at first, right? So at first we did the half hug, and and then we went from the half hug to a whole hug, and then we went from the whole hug to we were like holding each other's shoulders, and he kissed me on my forehead, uh, and you know, and, and the whole time you know we're crying, and you know he's telling me listen brother you my brother you know I love you I'm not gonna forget about you you know I'm a fight to get you home you deserve to be home with your family and that just that just meant so much to me that he like he he understood like a lot of times I I used to try to explain to people this was the victim that I harmed and he he understood it without me even having to go through the whole thing of explaining my journey right and so that's what meant so much to me. It's that human connection. Mm-hmm. We're all human beings, and we all make mistakes. Yeah. Every one of us makes mistakes. Yeah, and that's the thing about it. We all make mistakes, but then, uh, you know, but life life is not fair, right? And so sometimes some of our consequences are more harsh than others. You don't want to find yourself in that position to where the only help that can save your life is the act of the governor. Yeah. So I told myself, well, okay, now you just got to get out and do it and you got to live it, you know. And so that's what I'm doing. You know, I'm not saying I'm perfect, but I'm I'm living life. I'm enjoying life. I'm definitely a changed man and, and, and somebody who, you know, has wisdom through my experience, right? So I try to be very careful in the decisions I make. I try to really think about, am I doing, like, the right thing or... or Am I missing something? Like, could I be doing more? And I don't make it a thing where I like I'm stressing or anything, but I'm just more conscious of like who I am and my actions. You know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. What What are your hopes? What are your dreams? What is this next chapter of your story? Well, I'm not exactly sure. I know that I got that social responsibility. I know what those things entail. It entails me uh, staying connected with the people in the organizations that, you know, help lift me up and help get me to this point. It entails me really like, you know, advocating for uh, criminal justice reform, you know, the restorative justice model. You know, and, and please, people, it, it's, that's not about being soft on crime. It's not about, like, not holding people accountable. It's just about trying to make our world a better place, right? Yeah. Just like you say, you you know, you've been touching on it, right? Is that human connection. Yeah. The thing that I feel like I'm so aware of as a human being is, like, when you said, try not to cause harm. And I thought to myself, gosh, you know, as human beings— Part of being in relationship with each other mm. is that we hurt each other. Right. And if we have the restorative skills, if we have the recognition that it is all about relationship that's rooted in respect, mm-hmm. that when we do cause harm, when we do hurt each other, hurt each other's feelings or you know, do something that whether we knew it was going to cause harm or not, 
we take responsibility for it mm-hmm. and show up like mm-hmm. you've done and find out what we can do mm-hmm. to make things right for the person that we cause harm to and mm-hmm. be in relationship with them in a way that says, hey, I care about you. Mm-hmm. And this is really hard. This really sucks for me to have to humble down and you know ask you, what can I do to yeah. make things right? And then the beauty of that is it brings us back into connection with each other. Mm-hmm. And that's that's it. The generosity of human connection mm-hmm. is such a gift. Yeah. And for me, right, like it's the powers and the people. There's one more question. Okay. If you were to choose a title for your story, what would the title be? Oh, God. A, a a genuine journey of forgiveness and empathy. Yeah. So maybe tap into empathy. <laughs> right? <laughs> the subtitle. Yeah. <laughs> the yeah. genuine journey, tap into empathy. Yeah. Mm. Thank you so much for your genuine, generous heart and sharing your story. Yeah. Thank you for having me. Thank you. This chapter of the Restorative Justice Chronicles is entirely Michael Clifton's story. If you liked what you heard, please share the RJ Chronicles podcast with other folks. Stay up to date with the Restorative Justice Chronicles podcast by following us on Instagram at the.rjchronicles or on Facebook at the Restorative Justice Chronicles. And if you have a story that you would like us to consider about your experience with the restorative justice process, send me an email. You can reach me at debwitzel at rjchronicles.com. I facilitate high-impact dialogues and circles in organizations and with individuals. I coach, mentor, consult, train, and guide program development around the country. Please let me know if you have a need for any of these services and visit our website at the number three stories consulting. The Restorative Justice Chronicles podcast is produced by Deb Witzel. The original music is by Sean Michael Flynn. Thank you for listening to the Restorative Justice Chronicles podcast. Mm -hmm.